Hey, welcome to America Explained. This is Andy. Just wanted to apologize for the audio quality on this episode. We had some troubles in the recording studio, so it doesn't sound as good as usual. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. And next time we're going to be back to our usual super high production values. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello and welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host Andy Gawthorpe, fresh back from a trip to California I have come back to the Netherlands where it's cold, rainy, and dark, and I'm questioning every decision in my life which led me to live here rather than there. But on the other hand, America Explained is doing great. We're on track for our most downloads ever this month. I've also been so happy that lots of you have been emailing me suggestions for topics for episodes. This episode is based on suggestion by Peter, so thanks a lot, Peter, for that. There's other suggestions that I'm going to get to soon. Please drop me an email if there's a question that you want answering about America or a topic that you think we should cover on this podcast. I'll try to do that either with a full episode or maybe by introducing a listener mail feature. I think that would be really fun, just taking a few minutes every episode to answer a question that someone had. So you can find my contact details like my email and my Twitter handle in the show notes for this episode. I'd love to answer your questions, so please drop me a line. Also, if you like America Explained, please do tell a friend about it or consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform. That really helps us grow and get the word out to new listeners. So it seems like it's always election season in the United States. It's actually quite exhausting, isn't it? Just this constant churn of the election cycle. And this year is no different with the midterms approaching in November. And the fact that there's always nearly some sort of election campaign or another going on in America, it's arguably one reason why its politics seems so supercharged and all-consuming. It's like we never get an escape from American politics, even those of us who live overseas. But why is it that American elections seem to take so long? Well, one reason for that is the existence of the system of primary elections. These are the elections in which each party decides who its candidates will be for the general election when the candidates go and face each other. And a lot of media attention gets paid to these presidential primaries for good reason, because they're really important. They're where the two parties decide who they want to put forward to the public. So it's often where the parties debate their internal divisions. And we've seen these kind of high-profile matchups in recent years, which have been really ideological and, and really important, like Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders in 2016, and Joe Biden, again, versus Bernie Sanders in 2020. Bernie Sanders loves to primary people. And alongside these really high-profile races, every election cycle, there's actually dozens or hundreds of primary elections held for other positions, like governor and house member and senators. Now, to outsiders, to non-Americans, primaries, and well, in fact, even to Americans, primaries can seem like a really strange system. On the one hand, they're radically democratic, They allow many more people to have a say in who a party's candidate will be. But on the other hand, the primary system gives government authorities an unusual role in the process of picking candidates. And in many states, actually, this system requires citizens to declare their political affiliation to government authorities, something that I think we'd be very wary of doing, actually, in Europe or Australia or elsewhere. And you would particularly expect Americans to be very very skeptical about doing. 
So where did primaries come from? Well, they're certainly not mentioned in the US Constitution. A lot of people don't realize that the Constitution is actually not that democratic of a document in many ways. America's founders were really proud of throwing off the rule of kings and monarchs in, in the American Revolution. But what they wanted to create wasn't rule of all of the people, but actually only of a certain type of person. So they wanted to replace monarchy, not with democracy, but with a republic. And having a republic meant that only a relatively small, wealthy, white minority could vote in elections. And actually, candidates for offices like senator and president weren't decided by direct election at all. They were decided either by state legislatures or by the Electoral College, which was an even less democratic body at the time than it is now. Another really key thing about the founding and the constitution that we don't often realize is that Political parties were not officially recognized in the Constitution, and they were actually something that the founders really, really feared. George Washington spent about a third of his famous farewell address warning Americans about the dangers of splitting into political parties. He said that political parties would, quote, agitate the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, and foment occasionally riot and insurrection. And, well, don't those words really, really resonate down the years to us after we just suffered an insurrection in America? Washington also warned that parties would, quote, put in the place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community. And this idea that what he called the delegated will of the nation is key to how, how the founders thought American politics should work. They thought that America should be ruled and guided by a small class of well-educated, wealthy people with the appropriate Republican education and virtue. To them, it was a really dangerous idea that the common people who lacked wealth and education and virtue should have a say in picking from among their betters who should be rulers. So party primary elections would have combined two things that the founders were really strongly against. Firstly, the splitting of the people into antagonistic political factions, and secondly, allowing the people a direct say in who ruled them. Eventually, though, the founders passed from the scene and American politics changed and became more and more democratic. The first big change was that as the country became much more diverse and divided, this idea that you could just have some single delegated will of the nation came to appear ridiculous because there were such big divisions between different regions of the country and different classes of people, and political parties did begin to develop quite quickly in order to represent these different interests, and these parties needed a way of picking their leaders. This eventually led to the birth of the party convention, when important figures in the party would gather from all over the country in one place in order to pick their leader. The first convention was held in 1832 by a really interesting party called the Anti-Masonic Party. More about them another day. Hey, if you want me to do an episode about those guys, that's a really interesting story. Just let me know. But the important thing is that conventions really started to get underway in the early 19th century. But even then, they were not democratic and they certainly had nothing like a primary. Instead, they were the place where party bosses would get together with businessmen and other important elites in the proverbial smoke-filled room in order to decide which candidate would best serve the interests of that elite, the people that were actually represented in the room. And in many ways, the undemocratic nature of these conventions actually got worse as the 19th century wore on, as America underwent an industrial revolution and tens of millions of new immigrants poured into the country. There was more money around as America industrialized and, and became wealthy and came to have enormous levels of wealth inequality. 
and also there were many new unsuspecting immigrants whose votes could be bought and organised, and this corrupted the process further. The most well-known of these organisations was called Tammany Hall, which you may have heard of and which ruled New York politics for decades and decades and decades. Eventually, though, opposition to these corrupt party machines started to emerge, and this is where the idea of primary elections first comes onto the scene. So the idea first took off in a big way during the Progressive Era, which was around the beginning of the 20th century. The Progressive Era was this time when many Americans were rebelling against what they saw as undemocratic concentrations of power, both in politics and also in business. And they were thinking about how they could expand the role of the state in order to solve economic and social problems which affected ordinary people, and which the elites of the day did not want to do anything about. Many progressives thought it was vital to break up the alliance between big business and party machines, and primary elections seemed like an obvious way to do this. In their view, true democracy could not be said to exist in America if the people were only allowed to choose between whatever candidates the corporations and party bosses allowed them to choose from. Instead, the people had to pick the candidates themselves, and that could help to break this elite grip on American politics. So, a lot of states introduced primary elections during the Progressive Era, but then they kind of fell out of fashion later as party bosses reasserted themselves. And primaries only really became actually dominant following the Democratic Party convention in 1968, in which the establishment-backed candidate Hubert Humphrey became the candidate of the Democratic Party, despite not having won a single primary. And this was super controversial because Humphrey was a was Lyndon Johnson's vice president. He was seen as really a, the, the candidate of continuing the Vietnam War. And it was seen basically that the corrupt elite had made sure that Humphrey would win the nomination so that the Vietnam War could continue. So this led to really like widespread chaos and violence at the convention that year in Chicago, became known as the Siege of Chicago. It was a really actually important event in the rise of Richard Nixon. It was one of the things that allowed Nixon to present himself as the candidate who was going to restore law and order and kind of bring the turbulent 1960s to an end and, and, and re-establish authority in America. This was just, it was just a super bad time for the Democrats. And afterwards, they realized that they couldn't allow this impression to exist, or in fact, this reality to exist in the future, where actually the people were not choosing who their party's candidate was. So in the 70s, both parties moved towards holding binding primaries, and that's the way it's been ever since. An interesting aspect of this, though, is that it's actually the state authorities themselves rather than the parties which run the primaries. The reason for this is a little bit different. It's that due to civil rights law, which was passed in the 1960s, states must run elections. And the reason for that is to make sure that the elections are run in accordance with the principles of civil rights law and particularly racial fairness. So if the parties were allowed to run their own elections without the state, you know, overseeing the process or implementing the process, then, for instance, a racist political party might say that only white people get to choose who their candidate is. So state governments run the primaries in order to make sure that they're run in accordance with civil rights law, which is a very different situation to most countries. Like in the UK, it's not like the UK government runs the Tory party's leadership contest, right? But this is just a legacy essentially of America's history of racial oppression and attempts to overcome it. Okay, so now we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of primary elections and the effects that they have on American politics today. 
You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So if we're going to think about the pros and cons of primaries, then I think it's interesting to think about other systems which might be used instead. So one alternative might be to let only members of a particular political party have a say in who the leader of that party is going to be. This is the system that the Conservative Party uses in the UK, so it's the system that was just used to choose Liz Truss as the new leader of the Conservative Party, and well, if you've seen the recent economic news out of Britain, then you know that that wasn't a great choice, obviously, but more general terms, whatever you think about Liz Truss, it's actually really kind of weird and I think not a good thing to run leadership elections this way, because I mean, for instance, in the UK, only about 0.3% of the population are members of the Conservative Party, And that's a really particular demographic of people who's a member of the Conservative Party. I think their average age is something like 69 or 70 or something. So if you run leadership elections just based on party members, in the modern age in which, you know, party membership tends to be not widespread uh, across the population, you're letting only a very small number of people choose who the leader will be. And in the case of Liz Truss, I mean, she's massively unpopular with the public at large, even before this disastrous economic package that she just announced. So I think this shows how a party can really get out of touch if it only listens to its own members. And I mean, that could have really disastrous electoral consequences for the Tories, but just more generally, it's not a very democratic way to run these elections. Another alternative might be to somehow balance the people's vote with some group of unelected people who also get a say in who the leader should be. So as recently as 2016, the Democratic Party gave about 15% of the votes in its primary elections to so-called superdelegates. These were generally elected officials in the party or former elected officials or, you know, party apparatchiks. But This was a really controversial system. You probably remember this in 2016 because most of these superdelegates supported Hillary Clinton rather than Bernie Sanders. So it was seen as making the process really biased in favor of whoever the the, the chosen candidate of the party establishment is. It makes it more difficult for outsiders to win when you have this kind of superdelegate system. And because we live in such a democratic age, you know, this this just really doesn't fly anymore, I don't think. So that's why the Democrats have now almost entirely abolished the superdelegate system as a result. And it's hard to see how you can sustain the argument for this kind of undemocratic component to primaries nowadays. So primaries, it's hard to think of a better way of doing it. Actually, I think that it is a good system. I think that they're a particularly good system in a country as big as the United States, The US is such a diverse country with all sorts of different regions and classes of people, and it's really important to provide a way for new groups and individuals to have access to political power. It stops the country's elites from getting too complacent. It means the parties can't just choose and put forward who they want to be in power, but they're constantly subject to challenge by outsiders. They can always be replaced by new elites if those people can make a better case to the public. Being the favourite of the party establishment does of course still give you advantages in terms of money and media coverage and endorsements, but those advantages can still be overcome by a talented outsider. Just like to, to see this illustrated, just look at the presidency. So, for instance, in the UK, 
Politics tends to be dominated by people who made much better use of their Oxford or Cambridge degrees than I did. Rather than becoming a podcaster, they become the political leaders of the country. And these people tend to live in the southeast. They come from the upper middle class. They have the same educational background. And the identities of, you know, most UK political leaders is that are actually very similar. But if you look at the identities of the last, let's just say, 12 presidents in the US, they've been incredibly diverse. So counting roughly backwards, there's been the son of a used car salesman from Scranton, Pennsylvania, a celebrity property developer from New York, a law professor from Chicago, two Texas oilmen, a lawyer from Arkansas, a second-rate actor from California, a peanut farmer from Georgia, a Navy sailor from Michigan, a lawyer from California, and the son of impoverished farmers from Texas. Now, that's a huge, diverse group of people. It represents different regions, different social classes, different educational backgrounds. And I think that primaries play this really important function in America in giving different types of people access to politics and even access to the presidency. And of course, if we repeated that exercise for you know, other offices like governor and senator and congressman, we'd see also this really big diversity of people. There is a dark side to primaries as well, though. So this ability for different types of people to break through can sometimes lead to really bad outcomes because sometimes the, you know, bad people can break through. And this is something that we've been thinking about a lot since Donald Trump won the Republican primary in 2016. If you open up the process to literally anyone with the money and the political ability to win, then you lack any kind of filtering mechanism for excluding people who might pose a genuine threat to the country, as Donald Trump obviously does, with his desire to deconstruct American democracy. Primaries really rely on the wisdom of voters to exclude people like that. But that wisdom breaks down, I think, particularly in our modern media age, where people have become so kind of isolated in their own silos and their own ways of understanding the world. And that's led to dangerous people coming out on top of these primaries sometimes. Something that we're seeing again in the midterms this year, or rather I should say the the lead up to the midterms, when many Republican candidates who reject the legitimacy of the the last election are winning. Something that's been happening as well that, that primaries enable is that throughout this year, Democrats have actually been intervening in Republican primary elections to try to promote candidates that they think are likely to lose the general election. But what's that meant is that they've generally been promoting the really extremist candidates, like the dangerous people, because they assume that when it comes to the general election, those people will lose. Now, I think this is quite an irresponsible thing that they've been doing. It's quite a dangerous thing. It makes Democrats look like hypocrites when they complain about the danger that the Republican Party poses to American democracy, if at the same time, Democrats are actually promoting those same candidates in Republican primaries. But the system allows for these kind of shenanigans. And, you know, that's something that the primary system enables. It doesn't really happen in other countries. And this kind of leads to my next point, which is that another problem that primaries cause in America is that they can always, that they produce this tendency towards extremism and against compromise between the parties. The reason for that is that the general elections for a huge number of offices in America are basically not contested because one party has an overwhelming advantage among the electorate for that office. So just to take one example at random, say the, the 4th Congressional District in Mississippi, Republicans won that by 38% in 2018, 
and Democrats didn't even bother contesting it in 2020. There's no chance a Democrat is going to win that seat anytime soon, so the only election that matters is the Republican primary. Whoever wins the Republican primary for that seat is going to win it. What that means is that when that person who represents that district gets to Congress, they have absolutely zero interest in appealing to swing voters or working with the other party to achieve things. All that they have to care about is making sure the Republicans like them so that they don't lose the next Republican primary. And it's actually even worse than that because usually only quite ideologically committed people bother to vote in primaries. So you're actually, you have this system which is basically incentivizing a lot of Republicans and and it happens on the Democratic side as well to just basically make sure that they appease the most extreme of their own voters. That produced a generation of extremist Congress people whose only concern is to avoid losing a primary to someone even more extreme than they are, rather than actually governing the country. And it's a big contributor to the, the partisan gridlock that we see in America right now. It also helps to explain why, even though Congress is enormously unpopular according to opinion polls, most Congress people sail easily to re-election. So according to the analysis by an organization, Unite America, only about 10% of the electorate, vote that's the overall American electorate, vote in primary elections, which effectively decide the outcome of 80% of U.S. House elections. So many people live in gerrymandered districts in which their vote essentially doesn't matter. And meanwhile, primaries are deciding the composition of Congress based on the views of the most extreme slice of the electorate. So that explains why so many people dislike Congress, but they actually have no effective way to to change Congress and, and to get candidates that they want. Despite this, though, it does seem to me that it's a bit misplaced to blame all of this on primaries because it's unclear what other system would produce any better outcome unless other things changed as well. You know, things like the the high levels of media polarization and political polarization in America right now, which produce this extremism in the first place. The biggest reform that might make a difference is rolling back gerrymandering and making more districts genuinely competitive so that candidates always need to appeal to a broad swath of the electorate. There's also different types of voting systems, voting reforms that might work. So for instance, ranked choice voting, which requires candidates to get over 50% of the votes in a primary, rather than just winning a simple majority, is much more democratic and it it reduces this tendency towards extremism because you don't just win a primary by winning the most motivated minority. You do have to appeal to at least 50% of the voters. But, you know, these systems, are they're, they're very hard to implement because candidates don't want to be threatened by them. You know, candidates who prospered under a certain voting system don't want the system to change because then they might lose next time. But basically, I think that anything that actually increases the amount of democracy in the system rather than decreasing it would be a step in the right direction if it can be implemented. Returning to the days of smoke-filled rooms in which the people don't have a say certainly isn't desirable, but there isn't really any way for primaries to escape the deeper political problems of polarization and extremism that ail America either. For as long as American democracy is in trouble, primaries are going to be in trouble as well. It's just another symptom of this deep, deep malaise that we see in American democracy right now. That's it for America Explained this week. 
As my listeners know, the crisis of American democracy is one of the topics that I'm most passionate about, that I cover most deeply on this podcast. So I hope you'll tune in in the future for us to say more about these issues. Of course, we're going to be covering the midterms as well. We'll bring you some episodes soon on, on what's at stake. And of course, we'll cover the aftermath as well. So thanks for listening. I hope you tune in again and I will speak to you soon. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Giants Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.